Welcome to Baiyan, a podcast about the intersection between Taiwanese and American culture. I'm Joe. With me is Jack. Hello, everyone. Anna. Hello. Ryan. And our special guest today, Hannah. Hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> hello. How you doing, Hannah? Fabulous. Welcome onto the podcast. It's Glad great, to be here. Great to have you here. So, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? This question always scares me because the possibilities are endless, and I never quite know how to answer. Uh, yep. My name's Hannah. I've been in Japan for about six months now. Uh, came here to have my first big girl job and so fresh out of grad school i'm enjoying it so far i don't know what else to say well what is it that you do what did you study for and what'd you come here to do i studied statistics in undergrad and then i studied statistics in grad school and took a job at the radiation effects research foundation so they're a binational organization american and japanese that has a really interesting long history of doing radiation research here in Hiroshima and in Nagasaki surrounding the atomic bombings. And one interesting aspect of this institution is that they've been following survivors and their offspring for so long and they were really diligent about gathering data and samples from these individuals. So even as these cohorts of people die off, uh, there's still a lot of research for us to do, and so I am a statistician there and am responsible for helping the clinicians ask interesting medical health-related questions about the effects of radiation on human health. So what do you think is some of the most interesting stuff you've learned in the course of doing that job? Honestly, one of the most interesting things is how often we find no effects from the radiation. There certainly has been a history of increases in, you know, of course, we all know that leukemia increased quite dramatically. Uh, I believe the like 5 to 15, 20 years after the bombing. And there has been an ongoing history of cancers that have developed as this cohort of people age. But it's perhaps not quite as dramatic as one might think. Also, something that's highly of interest now as uh, the field of genetics has grown so much and advanced so much is to answer questions um, at the molecular level about these subjects, about whether the radiation has had effects uh, on the genetics, and specifically if there has been, if that has been passed on to the offspring. And so there's a huge study that's been planned for at least a decade, and it's finally just getting off of go because we have to balance the ethics and the morals of, this, uh, of the questions uh, with the actual science. And so there was a lot of work around meeting with the offspring, meeting with the remaining survivors or their next of kin to ensure that, one, this was something, you know, if we do have positive findings... Positive, not as in good, but we do find something um, that they're okay with knowing that information because as far as genetics goes, it's kind of is what it is. There's nothing really you can do about it. And so there was this long process of 
meeting with the survivors and their offspring. And finally, things have been approved. Uh, and now we're starting this extremely long consent process where, you know, originally survivors and offsprings had donated tissue and blood and urine samples under one particular protocol, and now we're using it in a different way. So we kind of have to go through this re-consent process, uh, which will take a long time. And, you know, of course, a lot of those people who originally consented have, have died now. So uh, Wow. Do, do you challenge. actually meet with survivors personally? I don't. They do still come in for clinical exams uh, about every two years, mm. both the offspring and the survivors. And what's that process been like of dealing with this data? Like you said, your background's in statistics. Mm. Do you have to cross over into other uh, areas of science and have to educate yourself to be able to interpret the data? Or mm. is it pretty much a pure mathematical mm. situation? One of, my favorite jo one of my favorite things about being a statistician is that I just have to be good at working with data. I don't have to know anything about the medicine or... The clinical side of things for that i'll rely on the clinical collaborators to for example uh include particular variables in a model that should be clinically important so i'll, I'll rely on them to tell me that information um, so there may be a variable that is not showing to be statistically important in a model but the clinicians know that it is related and it is important mm. adjustment factor. So in that way, I'll, I'll rely on them. And just from a curiosity standpoint, I will, you know, sit and Google things while I'm working. I'm like, oh, you know, what, what is this uh, measurement or what is this molecule kind of things like that? Um, likewise, you know, I'm constantly, despite 10 years of schooling in statistics, uh, the more I learn, the more that I learn that I know nothing. And so it's kind of this constant process of reminding myself of things that I had lear learned previously or kind of learning the next evolution of it. But interestingly, I have found that probably 98% of my job is data processing and data cleaning rather than doing actual statistics. So the data... It sounds like a lot of jobs. It is a lot of jobs. <laughs> Lots of... Lots of hats to wear. Yeah, a lot of jobs, you get into it to do one thing, and then you find out the reality of it exactly. is uh, you know, 98% cleaning up, like you said. Exactly, yeah. yes. So do you, do you like statistics? What is it that you find beautiful or interesting about statistics? I like that it's the pursuit of truth. So I always had a penchant for mathematics. I was really lucky to have really terrific math teachers growing up, but one thing I didn't particularly connect with was that I, I never really had a reason for doing math. And so I liked that statistics was always grounded in some sort of research, real world question. And so I quite like that part of it. I also like this process of trying to look for patterns in things. And I think I have a very logical, analytical mind. So I really and maybe too much sometimes, I'm doing this very deep critical thinking. So um, a, a good day for work at me is four hours of actual work, despite the fact that I'm there for like eight and a half hours, because sometimes it's so mentally exhausting to constantly be thinking so deep and so hard about everything that uh, quite often I have to step away and just not not think for a few minutes. Wow. 
so uh, so you're saying that you are uh, more focused on the statistic so uh does that means that uh uh do you do you play some role on data judgment i mean if you find some maybe like correlation between like the radio radioactive uh, versus some like some factor you find and uh, but you are not familiar with the, the the finding you have do you do you play some role on like giving the professional advice mm. i will help with the interpretation so i can give you the statistical interpretation of what's going on in, in the model and you know how the study has been set up and you know based on the analysis that one chooses to use there are certain conclusions you can or cannot draw so for example if you have a longitudinal study where the same data is measured at multiple time points you can make some assessment about direction of causality so x causes y uh, where x comes before y but for example if you have cross-sectional data which is data taken at one snapshot in time you can't make any assessment about causality because you don't know uh, you know has the outcome come after the exposure or is it the other way around so in that sense I will help interpret the data and help clinicians understand what we can and cannot say given the data on the other hand we rely on the clinicians to understand if a finding is actually important so one thing that's kind of interesting and mostly frustrating about statistics is that if you have a really large sample of people, you can detect really small differences in data. And those differences may be statistically significant, but at the clinical level, it may not be important or different enough to be anything meaningful. So it's definitely a lot of teamwork to come up with uh, an accurate story of everything that's going on. So we rely heavily on publishing journal journal articles together. We'll, we will all collaborate on the writing process. Fascinating. So uh, how about the report line? Is your work, working place a government uh, institution? And does the like, like your boss report to some government, like Japanese government offi officer or something? We are classified as a nonprofit institution. And we receive funding from the Japanese government, from the Ministry of Labor, Health, and Welfare. And on the American side, we receive funding from the Department of Energy. Uh, but interestingly, there's something about the image of the American government putting money directly into this effort. So instead of doing that, they funnel the money through the National Academy of Sciences, which often works very closely with the American government, but the National Academy of Sciences is a nonprofit institution as well. So technically I was hired by the National Academy of Sciences and I was also duly hired by uh, RERF here. What's the problem with the United States um, being behind this kind of research? What's the, what are the optics there? That's a good question. Is it because the United States is the one that dropped the bomb that caused the radiation issues? Is that? That would be front line, I think. Yeah. Yes. Huh. And sorry, do you report to Japanese or American? Mm. I mean, you're both. My supervisor is American. 
but it's not baked in that way. So uh, in the epidemiology department, they've got a uh, Japanese chief at the moment. Um, it just happens to be an American supervisor at the moment. So uh, your supervisor will like uh, decide the research direction and you will go that direction? Yes and no. He's been, you know, I check in with him every week to talk about updates on projects, but our meetings are usually 10 or 15 minute long, minutes long at most. So one interesting thing I've discovered about the research being done there is that while there are constantly new projects starting, there's an incredibly long evolution of projects. And sometimes they just don't get finished or they move incredibly slowly. So most of the projects that I started on when I joined are projects that the original research proposal was written a decade or more ago. And you know, research constantly evolves. So you may ask one research question uh, that fell under a particular research protocol uh, but you find something interesting along the way or another clinician gets involved and they want to ask a slightly similar but different question. So so it's not so much us, the statisticians, deciding what research to do or what direction to take it. There's kind of this longevity built in already that we kind of pick up where the last person left off and keep building on on what's been done. I have one other question I like to ask, especially people who work in the science fields. Um, does AI play any role in your job or the future of your job? And one day, do you think you'll be your job is replaceable by a computer? That's a good question. Currently, we have one statistician that is machine learning inclined. That's kind of his area of expertise. But for the most part, none of us are heavily using... AI models, I think they're very interesting, very usable, but there are several challenges to them that I think don't make them as useful as people may think off the ground. So one example of that is garbage in, garbage out. If you poorly train an AI or machine learning model, it's not going to tell you much. Another thing we have trouble with is that most of those models, they're kind of black boxes. You actually don't entirely know how they work or why they're working. So it presents a challenge to us from a statistical perspective in that we can't, can't justify or can't explain any results that we would get because we don't totally know the mechanism behind it. Those models are also only as smart as the people creating them. So I don't feel like I will be replaced by it. However, I will say in in our five-year plan for the statistics department, there is currently hope to build out uh, a more heavy-handed sort of data science core where we spend more time in that domain because it is true that the trove of data that we sit on is quite enormous, especially as we look towards doing this sort of full genome sequencing of the survivors and their offspring. That's just an enormous amount of data, which uh, AI and machine learning is particularly good for.
So there are possibilities, but uh, you're always going to have a role to play. I think so. That's good to hear. <laughs> I think, uh, sorry, let me add some comment here. I think it's similar with semiconductor field. Mm. Like there are always one group of people that are so, have so many patients on the AI the automatic uh, portion and other people we are like waiting for your results and usually those people who working for the automation and the AI machine learning parts they are not so familiar with other people's like this company's mainstream uh, the technical parts so like like what you said like garbage in garbage out they usually like say hey guys see I have some finding and eventually people people will say no your, your finding is nothing it's rubbish something <laughs> but but the problem is that there's a, a barrier, but the the people who work for AI, they always have this patience to break the barrier. So and they also always have the patience to use AI to replace the mainstream people. <laughs> so I think eventually they will have some big milestone. But still we have we still have like huge amount of engineer or scientists to, you know, support this AI to mature or something. Mm. Yeah. What about the human side of your job? You said like clinicians um, who are like the day-to-day, -day, you said your your main boss is American, but who are like the main day-to-day -day people that you see and work with? Are they mostly Japanese? Would you, like what kind of like work environment would you describe as you're, uh, as you're going? Well, I will say coming out of grad school, the only thing I knew was an academic environment and it has been a complete, 180 in terms of work environment. So before I had no structure at all, especially after I finished classes, I could work whenever I wanted, whatever day I wanted. And now being in Japan, it is a very strict 8.30 to 5. Lunch is at 12.15. It runs until 1 o'clock. <laughs> and so in that regard, it has been a little bit of a difficult transition. There's also no working from home. There's no flex hours very strict. Although I am coming to appreciate some things about that. And then as far as people, uh, it's the stats department in particular is pretty half and half Japanese and American. Uh, we also work very closely with the epidemiology department. Our efforts and projects often overlap and they skew a little bit more Japanese. Um, my hope in coming to this job was that you know, the one thing I didn't like about grad school, especially with COVID and kind of the aftermath of COVID, is that, you know, like everyone else basically experienced, it was incredibly isolating. And, you know, for example, I didn't, I didn't see my advisors for two whole years until I graduated. We would meet on Zoom every week, but we stopped meeting in person. So I was excited to come to a, to a workplace where we were working in person. I thought it would be much more face-to-face -face based, but I have found, and I think this is largely Japanese culture. Basically, everyone comes in in the morning, they go into their office and they close their door. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and nobody's really chatting with each other. So it still feels a bit isolated. And if I could change one thing about the workplace, I think it would be more opportunities to interact with one another and a little bit more actually working and bouncing ideas off of other people versus, you know, sending an email to your colleague who's on the other side of the wall from you. <laughs> yes. Have, Have you tried to pursue conversation? Have you tried to force it through? Force it? 
I wouldn't say force it. There are a couple of us. By a couple, I mean two of us. Where also another American, where we just, we constantly leave our doors open. My door is always propped open. It's an open invitation for people to pop in, but I find that mostly it is myself and this one other person popping into each other's offices. (laughs) Not so much other people. Let's just pop into some closed door office and see what happens. Trying to break through barriers. (laughs) It could work. Yeah, Anna has the similar the, the experience. Like before she came, she always said that, okay, I will break those like culture barrier. And the first day she came to the Japanese company, she just like go go to his like uh senior and say, Hey, hey, I just been here. Uh do, could could you tell me where can I get the drinking water? And her senior was like bounce back like one meter and say, oh, so, sorry, sorry. And he, he, he go back to his seat and use Teams to text Anna. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yes, but now I really enjoy this period. Mm, you I like, come to like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. us more about that. Maybe it'll help Hannah. <laughs> not, as well. I agree. It's not yeah, all I, bad. Uh, I think... Uh, in Japan, you don't need to show your emotions so much and people can feel you and can understand you. And so you don't need to be the asshole, but people can uh, know you are not happy or something. So I like this one. Uh. What do you mean? Like, so like, I guess maybe in some American offices, there's like a s- interaction, but some of it's superficial. And so there's not that in Japanese. Is that what you mean? I, I think I can feel like the air now it's changing and then (laughs) and when i feel this i me and my boss that we can get some kind of the consensus i don't know and we will okay you are not happy so i will uh i I will i will do it or something so So i like like you've gotten better at reading people Mm, yes i think I really can feel the chemistry between the air. Uh, <laughs> and I think it. <laughs> it's really good because in Taiwan, maybe you need to push very hard and you need to be an asshole. And sometimes then you can fight for your uh, some rights or something. But in here, you just you can be still be a gentleman and then you still can achieve your goal. I, I like this. Mm. Interesting. Good and bad points about it. <laughs> How about you, Hannah? What, what advantages have you found to that type of work environment? As I mentioned, I only spend about, on a good day, half of my day working. And so if I... I think that's true for most jobs. I'm hoping so. That's kind of what I'm, I'm learning. Most of the time, yeah. you're just <laughs> pretending to look like you're working. Especially for an office job, yeah. Yes. So uh, I am prone to closing my door and grabbing a quick half an hour, 45-minute nap when I need to. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did have an open-door policy always, you wouldn't be able to do that. So Exactly. So kind of the, the, there's some comfort in the distance that they have at work. And that was something that Jack had explained to me in last week's podcast. He talked about how there's this idea in Asia of the flavor of a friendship should be like the flavor of water. And I can see the advantages to that, right? It's a comfortable distance. It gives you space. Not everything's so personal all the time. And as Anna said, if you get good at reading other people, then you can get the same outcome without all of the drama that necessarily, you know, Follows a lot of workplaces, especially in the United States. So, yeah, I can see some advantages to that for sure. Yeah, and I think can get more time to respond to people. Like before in Taiwan, I'm like I have some, uh, like I push myself 
like if somebody asks me a question, then I will say, oh, copy that. I will, I will like immediately respond to them. But in Japan, I have more more time and to construct my sentence, construct my result, and go back to the person. Oh. Interesting. So you have more of like a filter almost that you can build into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the question about your workplace environment here in Japan kind of leads into your experience in general moving to Japan. I assume this is your first time living abroad? Correct. W- what's that process been like? For me, very exciting. I had my heart set on moving abroad since the beginning of grad school and spent... The way I survived grad school was to travel extremely often, as often as I could. It helps me keep my sanity. And so I was quite set on moving abroad post-graduation. I wasn't quite picky, wasn't particularly picky about where I would go or end up. So although I I was kind of, yeah, I kind of assumed, you know, probably somewhere in Europe. So Japan kind of came out of left field. Uh, so by and large, it's been a super exciting process. Most days I love Japan. Every once in a while I'll have a day where I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? Why do, why do I live here? This place is crazy. <laughs> what, what, what causes those days? I think it's days when I have to follow very specific rules that don't make sense to me. And in general, I like to push back against rules. I don't know if I'd call, I don't know if I'd label myself as a rebel, but I do really hate rules that don't make sense or don't have a clear purpose. Yeah, there's a lot of those in Japan. Yeah, although I will say, once you learn them, even if you don't agree with them, it's often when they come up and I'm not expecting them or I don't know about them that I really start pulling my hair out. Um, Although as you learn them uh, and know which ones to expect and you can work within them, then it's not as bad. So you said you've been here six months now, right? Yes. So so far, from what you've seen and experienced, what do you think are the most meaningful differences between American culture and Japanese culture? I will say one thing I've been enjoying, although it does almost make me feel guilty sometimes, is how private everything is. So I don't... In one way, that just means everything's really quiet, and I love quiet. Uh, On the other hand, it means people aren't constantly shoving their opinions in your face, which is uh, not the world America lives in at the moment. So it's been nice to not be in the current political environment of America. Although the guilt comes in, you know, as I'm reading the news and thinking about the person I used to be in America. I was very politically active. I uh, would attend protests and considered myself an activist uh, around issues that are quite important to me. And now I'm in Japan. I'm not doing any of those things Um, just, you know, as a function of being in Japan. But it does make me feel um, in some way that I'm not doing my quote unquote job. You mean your job as American citizen or... Yeah, yeah. And as a world citizen, basically, right? Yeah, world citizen even. Wow. (laughs) That's such a good mind. (laughs) Such a good mindset. Because I've been like, like go overseas like four four years. 
But uh, sometimes I I also very focused on Taiwan's news, and sometimes I I will think, oh, I wish I, I I'm I'm there, I'm in Taiwan, can participate in so many things. But sometimes I also think, but I don't have obligation over there, <laughs> and also I don't have obligation here because I'm not Japanese. So kind of like I don't have your guilt, like counting. <laughs> there are times when I'm perfectly fine with it. And I have way other ways to spend my time that I didn't have previously. But it is this kind of interesting gray zone where you're not entirely tied to one side or the other, or you can kind of just choose which of the sides you want to float between at any point in time. Yeah, it is a really cool thing about Japan that people just kind of let each other be. You know, it's not unusual to have a husband and wife who are members of two different religions and they live together in total harmony. Because it doesn't come up, people don't generally just start asking you religious questions or political questions, or you know questions about your identity. It's pretty much just kind of live and let live here, and that's one really nice thing about Japan. I mean, I, I can't think of anywhere where you would have more religious freedom than Japan. People just don't care. They don't care what you want to do. You, you want to go 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 to town, you know, go go for it. Whatever makes you happy. Yeah, it is a really free and comfortable place to live in that respect. It's a good point. Japan is the mecca of weird. <laughs> what do you mean by that? No matter what your niche is, you can find you can find it. It's here. If it's anywhere, it's here. Mm. And it gets weird. It speaking gets of, weird. Speaking of like free time, do you have any new weird hobbies that you've developed now that you're out of grad school, living in a new place? Have you had any weird niches that you've <laughs> jumped into? I don't know if I'd label them as weird, but... I was on holiday last month in Indonesia, got into diving and went diving this past weekend in Fukuoka, which was great. It's not diving in Indonesia by any means, but it was still fun to get out. Uh, although I guess in the, in the spirit of the previous question of interesting differences, I did discover that as I go on to pursue more training in diving, I do not want to do it in Japan because of their love for safety and rules. And I believe myself to be fairly competent in the water. And so this kind of extreme safety protocols in the water feels burdensome. Cut me loose. Let's do it. Let's have fun. Yeah, I'm with you on that. They have this rule at a lot of the public pools where every hour, everyone has to get out and take oh, a rest. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I, I was in swimming pool, everyone was get, getting out of swimming pool. I keep swimming and people come and stop me. Yeah, and then so you ask, okay, what's the purpose of this? Are you going to clean the pool or, you know? No, we just want to make sure shit? people are getting enough rest. It's like, well, this is the complete opposite of the American way of thinking, which is that's your job to make sure you have enough rest. Right. It's not the job go, of go, the go. paternalistic, you know, government to come in and make rules for everyone. Let people decide for themselves. And if you get tired, well, then you're going to learn something that maybe you shouldn't swim so long. <laughs> the rest of us don't need to be tied down by this you know, paternalistic uh, rulemaking. So I right. totally get that. Yeah. I, I know you're also interested in uh, energy and energy sources. That's right. Uh, I know Anna and Jack share that interest. I thought you guys might have some questions along those lines as well. I think the first one is that Japan this week released the treated water uh, from Fukushima. Uh, plant, nuclear power plant like how how do you think about it because I check and uh, currently I think now only remains the tritium 
and also carbon fourteen radioactive isotopes of hydrogen and、uh, carbon that cannot be easily removed from the water. And do you think these two things still harmful us, or it's just is okay actually?、Huh. So interest in interestingly,、uh, obviously this is very radiation forward. I I know almost nothing about radiation, despite my job. This is another area <laughs> where I rely on other people to help me learn about radiation. However, I have been reading about it a bit because it does. It is this interesting intersection now of, you know, radiation, which my job focuses on heavily, but also the environment, which is something I'm quite passionate about. And one thing I didn't realize until I was reading about Fukushima recently is that the melted reactors still put out heat. So. It's not like they've got these massive storage tanks of water, and they've got this fixed amount of water. They are still today having to cool these reactors, and so it has really、uh, created this pressing need to find some way to dispose of this radioactive waste. And the place where I've landed is that, with the science we have. It is true that, in theory, this water should be safe, you know, to the extent or to the amount, like the physical amount of water that has in the past been studied. What's unknown is the effect of such a massive amount of this over a chronic period of time. So while there's good reason to believe that it's Okay, I think there are outstanding questions, and there's, you know, this is not usually my stance, especially around oceans and environmental safety, to to let toxins enter the water. But you know, everything I've read and found suggests that, you know, yes, they are working under thresholds that are safe. And I also read a really interesting perspective yesterday that I think is the thing that really changed my mind. So if you zoom out from Fukushima and you look at the、uh, at the foreign politics of this, you know the two countries it seems that are making the most noise about this are South Korea and China, and China immediately put. A ban on seafood products from, I believe, anywhere in Japan, not just around Fukushima. Yeah. And South Korea similarly implemented sanctions.、Uh, I don't know that those were at the entire Japan level. It might have just been seafood from around the Fukushima area. That one was local. Local, yeah. And, you know, the inclination is to believe that. Governments are doing this because they care about their citizens. But the other aspect to consider, and it's much more cynical or nefarious, is that you know they no longer, because of world trade agreements,、uh, you know typically they would import from other countries. But these world trade agreements say that 
you know, if it has to do with quote unquote safety of citizens, then you can sanction these other countries. And so all of a sudden, neither of these countries have to import from Japan anymore. They can pull from other countries or from their own countries. So there is actually some underlying benefit to these sanctions to South Korea and China. So there is a lot of press coverage around, you know, hey, this could be unsafe. There are existing questions, but I think in some ways it's could be a bit of a facade. Everything yeah. is generally politically motivated in right. some facet, unfortunately. The, did you hear the uh, United States diplomat say he was going to eat a fish from Fukushima? I did not. Yeah, so apparently... It's the opposite side of the political posturing. Yeah, so there's posturing on both sides and opportunism. Certainly. So I think your cynical perspective is actually quite accurate, probably. Right. There's other motivations, because if you look at the policies of those two countries you mentioned and a lot of the things that they take part in, it's clear that environmentalism is not at the top of their priority list. Right. So, yeah. And also in 2011... Uh, when the tsunami just happened, also the uh, Chinese and South Korea's like government officer come to Japan, show their support to Fukushima, and they even eat some like, uh, like vegetable who, like planting uh, Fukushima, show their support. But ten years later, everything changed. They now like put sanction to Japan, and also we 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 uh, we found many like uh, Chinese people. They are now running to the supermarket and buying the salt because they think the salt will got like like polluted yeah, i saw about this yeah. <laughs> in, in south korea right there was like salt there, it was like toilet paper in covid kind of thing there's no salt in in supermarkets mm. which is absurd thinking yeah but it's politically motivated in a lot of ways yeah. and it's the way we show it on the media and but yeah i just looked up 1.34 million tons of water Mm. is an astronomical number that's yes. an insane number so they had to do something with it what right, the other it? options were vaporize it yeah. which that doesn't sound good no that doesn't <laughs> sound good or uh local storage within local like storage. their own groundwater which right. is also not good right <laughs> not good you're, you're because concentrating ha- it yeah has some trend has some risk can leak yeah. and will pollute the underground water yeah aquifers and yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm also Taiwan is the the politicians they are arguing about making some noise or not because the <laughs> the party who run powers now they don't want to like make some argument they think it's okay and uh, but the opposite way the KMT party they want to like make some noise like make some argument stand on the same side with China so as you see, it's it's more politically motivated than it is actually environmentally motivated. Everyone either criticizing Japan or supporting Japan. Are they really doing what's best for the planet, or are they just following along, you know, the lines of their alliances and their their own interests? I will yeah. say, I think the one entity that you know for sure will suffer. I do actually feel for the local fishermen because whatever is true or not true, the reality is there is going to be a large number of people who feel uncertain and from that uncertainty will move away from buying local fish whether it's unsafe or not so yeah the local fukushima fishing industry has been des i mean absolutely hemorrhaged in the last 10 years right it it is a fraction of what it used to be and it used to be one of the most powerful fishing areas in japan right and it's i mean super sad for the people on the ground there the big political or safety concerns whichever one actually weighs really affects people in a severe way it's very sad so did you guys have uh, other questions you wanted to ask Hannah? 
Yeah, I have another question. Is about Taiwan's current energy, and because uh, let me give you some background. Background. Ooh, English you teacher. Know I Chinese. know the words. I know the words. <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me give you some backgrounds of Taiwan's like current uh, power consumption situations. Maybe around uh 1980s, we have around uh 52.4% our uh, power consumption and electricity actually is coming from the nuclear power. And we have the six active reactor in three power plants, but uh, in the current um twenty twenty three, now nuclear power only account for only eight percent of our power consumptions, and our government target is to um uh phase out all the uh, power plant. So, but we have some like referendum and have some debate of this. But I would like to ask, like, how do you think about the nuclear uh, power plant? Do you think it's safe? Because Taiwan is also uh, islands with lots of uh, earthquake, so maybe will happen the same thing with the Fukushima. So, do you think uh, current uh, technology that uh, actually we can prevent this from happening again? I'm going to give a shout out to the Freakonomics podcast uh, with Stephen Dubner. He did an incredible episode, gosh, maybe uh, a whole bunch of months ago now, about the benefits and harms of nuclear energy. And before that, I felt like I didn't know quite enough to have a strong stance. But since that podcast, I've come around quite heavily to supporting nuclear energy, particularly existing nuclear energy plants because the reality is and for me reality means data and statistics uh, shows that once a nuclear plant is online it is a very clean form of energy and also quite safe so i think this trend of decommissioning existing nuclear plants is a shame because, you know, while there is a lot of solar and wind and hydro coming online, I don't think it's happening fast enough to replace the decommissioning of nuclear plants. And so what you see happening in lieu of nuclear is a lot of natural gas, which is terrible. Um, and even, you know, resurrecting or upping uh, coal plants, which is obviously terrible. So I think it's a shame to hear that Taiwan has this plan to go to 0% nuclear. Now, if they can do that because they have enough wind or solar or, you know, whatever else that is a green form of energy, then that's okay. But if they already have existing nuclear, then why not keep it? Uh, no, I think for Taiwan's case, it's a little bit different. It's not because uh, we want to like retire the clean energy, like already online nuclear plant. It's because our the fourth reactor, the fourth uh, nuclear plant, it's already be uh, put down schedule and built uh, maybe 40 years. 
but now still not finished. <laughs> so oh, it's not finished. Yeah, it's become a a, a money like black hole. I it's see. It's just burning money out, and and now people are saying the the scale of the plan is already like very old fashioned. It's not the the latest the latest one. So uh, eventually, we our government kind of forced stop the forced uh nuclear plant and also the one to three they they want it retire earlier because it already been online maybe 50 years and jack's told us also that it's a big goal of taiwan to diversify their energy since right now they're kind of a monoculture or mono industry when it comes to you know chip production they want to diversify a bit and one area they're really investing heavily in is alternative energy forms with offshore solar arrays and yeah that sort of offshore stuff. the turbine uh, the, turbines yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. the wind power uh-huh. and because it causes the... cancer <laughs> what oh, sorry that's a, a trump joke sorry <laughs> the, trump. Tur- <laughs> the turbine will cause cancer really this is what trump claimed yeah i see okay this sorry just to be very clear to all <laughs> listeners it does not cause cancer that's a horrible joke god, um god bless america god bless <laughs> trump trump did claim on a yeah on a, on a national speech that those cause cancer I see. yeah so maybe in the case of taiwan with them being a place that have a lot of earthquakes and having a specific history oh. of this project taking too long going over funding and having the the goal of developing their alternative energy sources maybe it makes sense for them but uh, but still, it's it's also a political topics because the offshore turbine cannot set up so fast to catch up because you know now we are setting up more and more the chip com- chip factory <laughs> so it consumes more and more electricity so the offshore turbine setup schedule kind of delayed due to the covid covid nineteen yeah so it's not only the engineering problems but also the political problems. Mm. Yeah. I think another unfortunate part of nuclear energy is the psychological component of it, where, like, you say the word Chernobyl, or you say Fukushima, or you say Hiroshima, and that has a very strong, like, fear factor, where then people's brains just get paralyzed by fear, and they don't look at data. They don't look at real safety. They don't really dig deeper than that. They just look at disaster, and they think, okay, this has a disastrous history, so we're not going to do it at all despite the fact that it might, you know, it could be very useful in some situations. It can be completely safe, but the psychological factor is super huge with nuclear energy. It's unfortunate. I think in statistic uh, perspective, like uh, for the, uh, the core planet and also the uh, natural gas, the planet, like they have a calculation, like each each watt it's uh, generate how many people die. <laughs> and compared to nuclear planets, it's... Uh, uh, super high but right. people they don't they don't they don't trust this kind of data they don't trust like how many people got the lung cancer because yeah. of burning this coal and natural gas it, they just like see a, the explosion of fukushima yeah it's like influenza every year happens but it happens every year so we don't get freaked out about it you know in the very similar way that it kills not quite as many as covid did but it kills a large amount of people like 60 to 80,000 a year but we don't freak out about influenza season because it happens every year and coal plants have been doing that for a long time. Right. So it's kind of become desensitized. It's very this unfortunate. Is, this is why we need statisticians. You got to bring logic to the chaos. <laughs> Happily. <laughs> well, um, in that case, I'll jump into the topic I prepared for this week. So we've all been preparing topics weekly. And last week I took a break to think about what I wanted to do. 
Um, but I thought about what my interest is in China and Taiwan, what part most interests me. And it's definitely the history. I love history. I think it's, first of all, the greatest story ever told. And it's all real and it all actually happened. Like the stuff that occurs in history is so did much it? more. Oh, it did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's debatable and there's sources. And that moon landing? I don't know. You think it was faked? You think Kubrick directed it all? <laughs> Wind turbines caused cancer. No, sorry. How do you think about India landing? I think it's incredible. So glad to hear that they've landed on the south side of the moon. That's such a huge accomplishment. And as yeah, it's the first country who landing in the the south yeah. pole, yeah, the dark side of the moon. Yeah. And as somebody somebody said, Lloyd, baby, uh, may have been the the PM from India said, you know, like look, global south can do it too. So yeah, kudos. Yeah, so that that's part of history is that everything is debatable and they say history is written by the victors. But um, if you use good sources and you have good historians, um, there's just incredible stories to be told throughout history. And it's also so instructive. It really helps you understand our present, how we got here. And in the case of China, my primary interest is uh, the development of communism, of their own particular brand of communism that they developed. And so what I'm going to do is uh, learn more about Taiwanese history in particular, but I want to follow Chinese history up until the point that Chiang Kai-shek and his army um, retreated to Taiwan to understand the history that kind of is the background for what takes place after that. So in that spirit, I'm going to start today with just a quick summary of the China's imperial history, um, just kind of talk about why China had such a successful empire. I mean... Um, I want to ask you guys, why do you think China was so successful in its imperial history? Do you have... Did I think you, that's did, direct towards you, Taiwanese. Did you guys study Chinese history in school? Yes. What, what's, what's the story you're told about China's imperial history? Do you know China's Chinese meaning? Uh, yes, uh, middle country. Just yeah. in Japanese, Chugoku, middle Chugoku. country. Yes. Yeah, it's center of the world. That's right. So it's success. It's kind of like in our historical book, it's like necessary. It's, it's, it's that's destiny to be success. Zhongguo. Yeah, yeah. Zhongguo. Yeah. Oh. yeah. So, uh, the what we learn is just that because it's the center of the world. So like we gathering the best, like resource in here. So, we don't have. I don't have strong opinion why it's success. Yeah, it's interesting to hear the perspectives and what you're taught in school. And it would be shocking probably to a lot of American listeners or other people from other countries to hear that, that China considered itself the center of the world. As recent as 200 years ago, if you ask the Chinese emperor, what is your dominion? He would say the four corners of the earth. And he can be forgiven for thinking so because China was such a tremendously large empire and had such a long and stable history. I mean, there are two major invasions over the course of imperial history. You have the Mongols and then you have the Manchus. And in both those cases, those invading people ended up getting assimilated by Chinese culture. I mean, even though they came from the outside, the the mass and the force and the um, the history that China brought was was basically undestroyable and ended up con, you know consuming its own conquerors. They they are saying that uh, every because it's the center of the world, so every con conqueror actually they want to live here. So if they conquerors, they become Chinese. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And also there was a hypothesis that if in World War Two, like Japan eventually like conquer all over the, the China, they will become Chinese as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good question, right? Um, it's almost undeniable. I mean, the emperor was called the Son of Heaven. Was that Tianzu? Yes. Tianzu. Yeah. 
So from their perspective, it, it was the center of the world. And you can understand why. I mean, you're talking about thousands of years of dynasties. And of course, there, there were some consolidations in the early years. And then, like I said, a couple major invasions. But besides that, it's one of the longest running, most stable empires in history. So you've talked about the size of it, the centrality of it. Um, open up to, to Ryan and Hannah, too. Do you guys have any idea about you know Chinese imperial history or why it was so successful for so long? I got nothing. I'm here to listen and learn. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Ryan? Same. Same. Okay. So uh, Sorry, let me update another point. Sure. Although it's been called so sad in thousands of years, but in my mind, I think it's nothing. Because every dynasty, actually, they are so prosperity and also... You're not allowed in China anymore, buddy. You just... I'm Taiwanese. <laughs> You're on a list now. Yeah, You're yeah, on yeah. the list. You're never going to be allowed to China now. That's our reputation. <laughs> Taiwanese reputation is caused China's many problems. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. continue. Okay, so it's said that uh, it's so prosperity and also like occupy like maybe the world 60 or 70 GDP in thousands of years. But I think it sacrificed so many people's life, so many individuals' soul. So I think it's nothing different. Like the, the very beginning Qing or the very last, the Qing, they are the same. They just like square the people who, who live in the basic. And in thousands of years, like China we don't like invest or we don't have new tech technology and also we don't have individualism. So that's why the modern like Western individualism is so attractive in Asia, in my point of view. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. And it's something you kind of take for granted when you study ancient history. And I love ancient history. You kind of take it for granted that there's a massive amount of inhumanity going on. It's like there are no empires that did not trod on millions and millions of people that people didn't suffer to build um, but it's important to keep that in mind right that uh, this this success was didn't come free but there there is a genius to China and there are some truly exceptional aspects to it that I do think deserve some praise um, for instance one of the cornerstones of their success was that China developed um, the words the world's first civil service I mean they had an extremely efficient method of uh, training and hiring civil servants. It was open to everyone. You didn't have to be rich. They were simply looking for the best. Um, I mean, well, there's some, there's some caveats. So it was only men, and you had to be literate. Everyone. Which, which, <laughs> which to be... In the ancient world, that was, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so to be literate was not such a simple thing in China. I mean, we're talking about a, you know, a language we have to memorize thousands and thousands of characters and then tens of thousands of combinations of those characters. So typically that did create a certain barrier to entry, but um, the civil service in China was very efficient and for its day, very democratic and open and progressive compared to the rest of the world. I mean, I'm looking prim primarily from about, you know, 600 to 1700 AD. And this is the period where Europe was in the dark ages. You know, China was at the height of its power. It was only in the 16 and 1700s that we had, um, you know, the new era of thought in Europe where really kind of Europe started emerging from the dark ages, which were triggered by the fall of the Roman empire around the five hundreds. Um, so yeah, that's one big part of it is China's civil service and the fact that they were the first empire to uh, create such a thing and that it was so forward thinking for its day. And they were highly efficient and very, very successful in maintaining the Chinese uh, empire. Another big piece is early wet rice cultivation. China was one of the first places on earth where that took place, and they were the masters of it. They were so good at it 
that in the next chapter I'm going to cover next week, it ends up becoming a problem for them because they do not have motivation to discover new technologies because they are so successful at doing what they do, which is grow a fuck ton of rice. Um, and what allows that rice cultivation is also their mastery of uh, uh, large-scale water management techniques. I mean, China has a sort of flood and drought sort of cycle that they go through there. But um, they had these huge projects that were, you know, centrally administrated where they would control the flow of water, store water. Uh, and that's kind of what helped enable the uh, tremendous wet rice cultivation system that they, they developed there. Um, the fourth cornerstone to why their empire was so successful is Confucianism. And Jack, you talked about some of the limitations of this non-individualistic uh, approach, but that's the modern perspective, right? If we go back hundreds and thousands of years and look at how people were living, Confucian Confucianism actually helped create a lot of social stability for them. I mean, in Confucianism, there's a strong sense of each person has their place, right? You have to know your role. Wives should be obedient to their husbands. Men should be obedient to you know, the emperor, and everyone should revere and venerate their, their dead ancestors. So it kind of gives a, a sense of order to life, right? Everyone has their place. Everyone has a role. And it kind of maintained a lot of stability within the core of the empire. Now, on the edges of the empire, China used to be a much more diverse place than it is today. Now it's 91% ethnically Han Chinese. But back in the days of the empire, I mean, you had at least 50 major minority groups living within the borders of the Chinese empire. You know, Tibetans, Muslims, Manchus, Mongolians, I mean, all kinds of different people. And their extremely rigid law code is what helped maintain stability in those areas where people did not necessarily conform to Confucianism, right? So they had a very strict set of laws. It was very well defined and very strongly enforced. So law and order is a, a linchpin to any sort of large empire you want to create to make sure that people are able to go about their lives without, you know, being robbed on the road or that there's justice if something does happen. So that's another part of the genius of China was their their legal system and their their system of enforcement of those rules. I think in current in modern world, only place that conserve all conserve all the preserve all the Chinese like advantage parts you, you mentioned is Japan. Really? Yeah. Like I think everyone can agree like Japan like agriculture the the best rice in the world. I that <laughs> maybe yeah, I think most people do. Maybe. I'm not I'm not knowledgeable enough about <laughs> rice varieties to say, but and also, everyone tells me that. Also the Confucianism. I think Japan preserved very well. Yeah like, that's a good point. Like the philosophy we mentioned how like people should react with each other. For Westerner maybe your philosophy is to be honest. But for for Confucianism, it's uh there's a there's a manner like everyone need to follow what role you are and what occasion you are in, what kind of language you should speak. Every time before you speak, you should think twice before the words come through your mouth. Yeah, preserve the peace. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. It is it is cool to think about those ancient aspects of Asian culture that have lived on in Japan. Um, and, you know, many of them are still present in China as well. Uh, I don't have as much experience with China personally, but, you know, I think the Confucius, Confucianist way of thinking is really important to understanding China and how they got where they are and understanding a lot of the aspects of Asia that are difficult or different from the West 
Um, it, a lot of it comes from Confucianism. You know, it's a lot about your, the way you carry yourself personally is going to translate to the way life exists publicly. You know, it's very much focused on the group, very much focused on families and neighborhoods, not individuals. So that's one of the big differences between the West and the East is the focus on individualism versus, um, you know, the focus on the, the many. So, yeah, they, they called it the yin and the yang of effective imperial rule in China, uh, Li Zhe and Fa Zhe, right? Confucianism and the law code, basically. Um, so two more points. Uh, the sixth one is the um, development of advanced metallurgical techniques in China. They had a massive, massive uh, production capability. Like in one year, they could supply their standing army of one million soldiers with 100,000 tons of pig iron which pig iron is just a more simply produced iron. It predates modern iron techniques. But, I mean, the, the amount of iron they could produce and the, the consistency and the quality for the era they were in was absolutely tremendous, and it's part of what supplied their massive army. And unlike a lot of other empires, like if you contrast them with the Roman Empire, which was always trying to expand its borders and go and conquer its neighbors, China once, once China kind of reached its current modern boundaries, they didn't really do a lot of conquest. Part of the other reason they were so successful is that they had three large, relatively weak kingdoms bordering them to the south and the east. And they collected tribute from those kingdoms. And there were some, some times in history when you know, they would bring the army out and have a, a big show of force. But generally, especially compared to other, um, other large empires in history, they didn't do nearly as much conquering outside of their own border. Disagree. Disagree. I think Why do you disagree? That is the traditional way to think about China. Mm -hmm. Like Chinese always say that, oh, we are so peaceful. We never like like conquer outside. But actually, they send the army to the east, east north, and also the Korean island, and also the current Southeast Asia many times. Uh, the I think the reason they they don't send the army to there so so often is just because they pay tribute. Yeah. So I don't think. Chinese is, uh, how to say that? As peace, so peaceful. So peaceful as they said. Yeah, when you go into ancient history, again, no one looks like a saint, right? It's all relative to other empires of the day or what you might expect. I'm sure, you know, lots of people uh, suffered for the, the maintenance of the empire. But historically, you know, from what I read, when you compare it to other empires, not nearly as bloodthirsty or as focused on, you know, conquering uh, other places as, as some other empires did because the Romans were always expanding. Mm -hmm. They never stopped until they basically imploded. Um, and Ro Roman history is my favorite history. So that's my, my point of reference for a lot of this stuff. But it's, it's cool to hear your perspective because I imagine a lot of stuff you know about Chinese history I don't and I'm just diving in. So yeah, anytime you have a different perspective, I like to hear it. <laughs> yeah, but that, that, that is it, is the, the seven big reasons why the Chinese were so successful. And this kind of sets up the sets up the stage for what's going to take place next next week i'm going to talk about the the fall of china when the imperial dynasties failed um and a lot of the things that made them successful during the period i just talked about were their undoing in the end you know they became complacent they didn't have motivation to discover new agricultural techniques because they were so successful with what they had so as the world changed china kind of failed to keep up and that's what i'm going to talk about next week but yeah this is a good way to, to set set the plate I'm always happy to say something negative of, about China. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like me talking about America. It's yeah. great. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it's good to have both perspectives. I like to be critical when it's um, 
you know, when it's earned. And yeah, it's good to test your ideas too. Yeah, so we welcome it. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know, Jack has so much hatred about Chinese <laughs> imp imperial period. <laughs> because we suffer a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your perspective on it is going to be different and it's going to be unique. And that's what I'm looking forward to is moving up to the area that really interests me, the Mao, Mao period and um, the formation of modern Taiwan. And I, I'm planning on learning a lot. So, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys all for coming. It's been awesome to get to know more about you, Hannah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're hoping we can have you again sometime. How was your first experience on a podcast? Delightful. I can see why you do this every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. We just like talking. She, uh, for the listeners now, she had a dream of being on podcasts, and now she's realized it. So In the best podcast. Best podcast <laughs> in Minamiku. In done in the confines of our school. <laughs> oh yeah! Shout out to our number one fan, my mom. She asked me to give you guys uh, a message this week. She said she listens every week. She really enjoys all the podcasts, and she's continually impressed by Jack and Anna's English. She just thinks it's amazing that you guys are able to do a podcast that talks about all the different subjects that we do in a second language. So, um, shout out to you guys. Yeah, truly, good Kudos. job. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, so, you much. so much. So everyone, have a wonderful week. Thank you all for being here, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank Bye. you. Bye. 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 Goodbye.